Hi, everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. In this special podcast recording, the 25th session of There and Back Again, we are going to discuss Flight to the Ford, the 12th chapter of The Fellowship of the Ring, and the last chapter in the first book of The Lord of the Rings. Next week, we move into book two. We move into Rivendell, but first, we have to get Frodo all the way from Weathertop to the Ford of Bruinen. This is one of the pivotal chapters in the early movements of The Lord of the Rings because it carries us safely from the realm of the mundane, even though Weathertop was an exception to that. We're going to come back down into the natural world, but it is going to be harshly juxtaposed with the realm of fairy, with the realm of the fantastic, with the realm of the deadly Nazgul. We'll get through all of that. First, a quick announcement, I suppose. You may be able to tell by the quality of my voice and the quality of this recording that this is not a usual live session of There and Back Again, we were hit with some technical difficulties, you guys. Those technical dragons afflicted us again. The live video was brought to an unceremonious halt last Sunday after being delayed for a few days because of the aforementioned technical problems. And then after the live session faltered, I realized that my local recording was also corrupted. I don't know who I have angered. I don't know who I have infuriated. I don't know why the shadow has fallen upon the work that I'm trying to do here at There and Back Again, but we will persevere and we will overcome. So this is going to be a briefer encapsulated version of the lecture that I gave last week of the live session that we held last week. And then we're going to get right back on course as we move into next week's session, session 26, in which we're going to discuss many meetings, the first chapter of book two of the Lord of the Rings. So in order to make this recording a little more engaging, and because I don't have access to live video right now, I would urge you all to check the show notes where you can find a link to download the slides which accompanied the live session. You can look at those as we move through the reading this week. You don't necessarily need to. Certainly, I'll read the slides as I always do. We are going to begin by looking at the map of Eriador, so that would probably help, but you can find, as I say, that link in the show notes. With that said, let's get started. And we're going to start with a little geographical inconsistency. If you look at slide three, I guess, after the two title pages, you'll be able to see the map of Eriador, and you'll be able to see Weathertop. And you can track Weathertop, the road running through the last bridge, all the way to the Ford of Bruin and the Loudwater, and thence onward to Rivendell. That is the ground that we're going to cover this week. And you'll see that between the last bridge and the Ford of Bruinen, there are the Trollshaws, the forests beneath the Ettenmoors. The Ettenmoors there a little further north, above the Horwell, in the lee of the Misty Mountains there. We are going to address, in the course of this week's reading, Bilbo and the Dwarves' encounter with the three trolls back in the pages of The Hobbit. And we're going to have to address an odd geographical inconsistency, as I say. Let's take a look at the second chapter of The Hobbit. This is from the chapter Roast Mutton, when Bilbo and the dwarves cross the last bridge, though it is unnamed in the pages of The Hobbit. Still the dwarves jogged on, never turning round or taking any notice of The Hobbit. Somewhere behind the grey clouds the sun must have gone down, for it began to get dark as they went down into a deep valley with a river at the bottom. Wind got up, and willows along its banks bent and sighed. Fortunately, the road went over an ancient stone bridge, for the river, swollen with the rains, came rushing down from the hills and mountains in the north. It was nearly night when they had crossed over. The wind broke up the grey clouds, and a wandering moon appeared above the hills between the flying rags. Then they stopped, and Thorin muttered something about supper, and where shall we get a dry patch to sleep on? The dwarves then take a brief moment to uh, to observe that Gandalf has left them, that they are now alone, and to complain a little bit, as dwarves are wont to do in the early chapters of The Hobbit, and then we get this extract. 
There they all sat glum and wet and muttering, while Owen and Glowen went on trying to light the fire and quarreling about it. Bilbo was sadly reflecting that adventures are not all pony rides in May sunshine, when Balin, who was always their lookout man, said, "'There's a light over there!' There was a hill some way off with trees on it, pretty thick in parts. Out of the dark mass of the trees, they could now see a light shining, a reddish, comfortable-looking light, as if it might be fire or torches twinkling. When they had looked at it some while, they fell to arguing. Some said no, and some said yes. Some said they, sh- they could but go and see, and anything was better than little supper, less breakfast, and wet clothes all the night. So it is clear from this extract from chapter two of The Hobbit that having crossed the last bridge, the dwarves and Bilbo can immediately see the light from the troll's fire. They investigate, they arrive there later that evening, so it is a short walk from the last bridge. However, in The Lord of the Rings, Frodo and company spend five or six days traveling from the last bridge to the troll encampment. They cross the last bridge on the 13th of October, they reach the troll camp on the 18th of October, and then reach the Fort of Bruinen on the 20th of October. So this pushes Bilbo's encounter with the trolls far to the east, much, much closer to Rivendell, which I don't think is inappropriate. We are as ever, as we journey east here on the road, we are as ever crossing a series of thresholds delineating the civil from the uncivil, the west from the wild. We have not yet, of course, crossed the the Misty Mountains and passed into what is actually technically capital W, wild, but we're still seeing a similar progression than we got from Bilbo and the Dwarves back in the pages of The Hobbit. Now, of course, Bilbo's adventure was more straightforward. Bilbo's adventure was more simple in terms of these thresholds because he traveled by road and there really weren't any major events until we get to the trolls. Of course, this encounter happens in chapter two. This is, as Frodo will later say, as Bilbo said at the time, Bilbo's first truly successful adventure. Frodo's journey has been somewhat different. Crossing down into Buckland and coming through the old forest and coming up through the Barrow Downs to Bree was an odd tangent, a diversion into the realm of fairy, into the realm of the wild. It was much more powerful. In fact, all the way back in the Shire, when Frodo and the other hobbits ran into Gildor, that is a stark and explicit transition into fairy, the likes of which Bilbo and the dwarves somehow managed to avoid. So while Bilbo's progression toward the wild is more smooth than Frodo's, Frodo's is no less important. The thresholds that Frodo crosses are less clearly demarcated and his progression is less smooth, less linear than Bilbo's, but the thresholds still matter. So we've had our journey east, we've had the transition from the old, from, from the safety of the Shire into the relative you know, queerness of Buckland, into the old forest and its outright antipathy toward the hobbits, into the Barrow Downs and their outright antipathy toward all living things, but then back to Bree, which is challenging in a very different way. That is the threat of the civil rather than the threat of the uncivil. We've then passed eastward through the Midgewater Marshes, which are, you know, a fairly unpleasant place to be, to Weathertop, which is itself a place of of strategic sanctity almost, but then the attack of the non-school and Frodo's grave injury. So now we're going to come back down again, out of the realm of fairy, out of the realm of mythic history, from Weathertop, back onto the road, across the last bridge, to the trolls, and the trolls here indicate a very different transition. As the Hobbits say, we're forgetting our family history. We don't remember this part of the story because it feels as though we're in a very different kind of story. 
I guess, had had Frodo left without the pressure of the Black Riders, had they simply been traveling east, it seems unlikely to me that he would have forgotten about the trolls. That would presumably have been quite a landmark on the journey toward Rivendell. But because they are harried, because they are hurried, because they are under all of this pressure, it is difficult for them to to remember that their story and Bilbo's story are taking place within the same framework, within the same world. So it is a shift, again, away from the naturalistic world, but rather than the somewhat fearsome and aggressive, malevolently magical world, the wraith world, if you like, that they've been inhabiting on and off over the course of the last few weeks, this is a shift back to fairy. This is a shift back to sun-drenched misadventures with dwarves. So I like that we're pushing it further east. I like that we're drawing it closer to Rivendell. The whole thing makes a lot of sense for me, except, of course, for that geographical incompatibility. And that geographical incompatibility was not lost on Professor Tolkien. He was, of course, studious about such things. He was a stickler for for accuracy in his maps, as he was in all of his work. This is specifically one of the things that Tolkien sought to address in his 1960 revision of the Hobbit, and as I've said before, I say I call this a revision to The Hobbit, but a page one rewrite would be more accurate. In 1960, after the publication and enormous success of The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien wanted to go back to The Hobbit and rewrite it to elevate it into the same mythic operatic register as The Lord of the Rings. He wanted to make the two stories even more compatible. Right now, there's little contradiction between the two, but there are, as we've observed in our discussions, some inconsistencies between the two texts. The use of the word goblins, for example, the role of the ring, the presence of the ring, the idea of the Shire, the fact that the Shire is completely undeveloped in the pages of The Hobbit, or at least until we get a hint of Hobbit culture right at the very end that would then expand out into our understanding of the Shire in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien wanted to go back and rewrite The Hobbit to retell the story inspired by the work that he had done on the quest of Erebor and the fragment that we get in The Unfinished Tales. He wanted to write this in the same register as The Lord of the Rings. And one of his goals in this was to to make compatible the geography and the history that's laid out for us in both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And also, coincidentally, the phases of the moon. If you pay close attention to the phases of the moon in The Hobbit, you will learn that they are just wrong. They are are just incorrect. And he wanted to go back and revise that and change it all. And he did. And he got almost as far as Rivendell. So, you know, chapter three, not terribly far, but he got a ways into the book and then passed it to a friend who read it and said, this is wonderful, but it's not The Hobbit. And Tolkien conceded the point and set aside the rewrite. And there are varied accounts of whether or not he was still planning on going back to The Hobbit and revising it again, or if we were going to get a different version of the story, perhaps from a different POV later in his career. But as is so often the case with J.R.R. Tolkien, he never wrote it. We don't have that manuscript. So all we have is this fragment, which is interesting, but I tend to agree, is not The Hobbit. So Tolkien, all of this is to say, I suppose, that Tolkien was mindful of the geographical inconsistency, was mindful of the development of Middle-earth between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and wanted explicitly to address that. Let's move on then into our reading this week, into chapter 12, Flight to the Ford, and we're going to begin with Frodo waking in the lee of Weathertop. When Frodo came to himself, he was still clutching the ring desperately. He was lying by the fire, which was now piled high and burning brightly. His three companions were bending over him. "'What has happened? Where is the Pale King?' he asked wildly. They were too overjoyed to hear him speak to answer for a while, nor did they understand his question. 
At length, he gathered from Sam that they had seen nothing but the vague, shadowy shapes coming towards them. Suddenly, to his horror, Sam found that his master had vanished, and at that moment a black shadow rushed past him, and he fell. He heard Frodo's voice, but it seemed to come from a great distance or from under the earth, crying out strange words. They saw nothing more, until they stumbled over the body of Frodo, lying as if dead, face downwards on the grass with the sword beneath him. Strider ordered them to pick him up and lay him near the fire, and then he disappeared. That was now a good while ago. Sam plainly was beginning to have doubts again about Strider, but while they were talking he returned, appearing suddenly out of the shadows. They started, and Sam drew his sword and stood over Frodo, but Strider knelt down swiftly at his side. "'I am not a black rider, Sam,' he said gently, "'nor in league with them. I have been trying to discover something of their movements, but I have found nothing. I cannot think why they have gone and do not attack again, but there is no feeling of their presence anywhere at hand.'" First of all, we must, of course, command Samwise Gamgee on his unbelievable courage. Here, Strider has abandoned them, laid Frodo by the fire, and then vanished into the night. He returns, and Sam's first instinct is to stand over Frodo and to draw his sword. He is facing down Strider. That is a great moment of heroism for Sam. And, of course, we see, again, his unassailable love for Frodo, his loyalty to Frodo. What's most interesting in this passage, though, is the account of Frodo's experience, if that's the right word, with the ring and with the Nazgul. Suddenly, to his horror, Sam had found that his master had vanished, and at that moment a black shadow rushed past him and he fell. He heard Frodo's voice, and it seemed to come from a great distance or from under the earth, crying out strange words. They saw nothing more until they stumbled over the body of Frodo, lying as if dead face downwards on the grass with his sword beneath him. So, first of all, a crucial observation. We noted this last week, but just to emphasize the point... In the Peter Jackson adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, Frodo is stabbed in the shoulder, kind of, but it is in the chest. That is not true in the book. In the book, Frodo is stabbed in the back. He cries out, Elbereth, Gilthoniel, and attacks the Nazgul, falling forward so that the Nazgul can pierce his shoulder, yes, but the the rear portion of his shoulder, if you like. So that is clearly what has happened here. I am most interested, though, in Sam's account of the strange words. He does cry out, Albareth Gilthoniel. But would Sam fail to recognize those elven words? Would Sam be unable to remember Albareth Gilthoniel from their fairly recent meeting with Gildor? Sam, Elf Sir Gamgee? Would he really fail to recognize those words? It's possible that under the stress of the, the attack of the shadows, he would. It is possible that perhaps he couldn't hear them clearly. It is possible that whatever effect is applied to Frodo's voice in this moment, now that he is in the realm of the wraiths, Sam would be uncertain about what it was that his master had said. But I wonder about the quality of speech when one is in the wraith world. When Frodo has put on the ring and entered into the wraith world so clearly that he can behold the Pale King before him, and the Pale King, of course, can easily behold Frodo, what happens to Frodo's speech? What is the intersection between that world and the real world? And I'm trying to remember in the pages of The Hobbit if we ever had Bilbo speaking in a way that could be heard while wearing the ring, speaking in a way that could be heard by people who aren't wearing the ring, and I can't think of a single example, or at least not a single example that is tagged with any kind of of explanation as to the quality of his voice. And of course, even then, we must remember that that there is a a certain amount of headcanon that can be applied to the power of the ring between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. One of the elements introduced in the Peter Jackson uh, adaptation, one of the elements made explicit, at least, in the Peter Jackson adaptation, is that the ring itself is growing in power. The ring is becoming more powerful as Sauron 
ascends and Sauron returns to the full measure of his power. The connection between the two is explicit, even within the text of the Lord of the Rings. The ring is a fragment of Sauron's power, but it seems to wax as Sauron seems to wax. And that that makes a lot of sense. So any inconsistency here between the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit may not even be significant in our understanding of what is happening to Frodo right now, but his disappearance and then this strange quality to his voice and Sam's apparent inability to understand his words, I find this fascinating. I find this compelling. Then we look at that last paragraph. I am not a black writer, Sam, he said gently. This is Aragorn speaking, nor in league with them. I've been trying to discover something of their movements, but I have found nothing. I cannot think why they have gone and do not attack again, but there is no feeling of their presence anywhere at hand. And I'm curious about this feeling of their presence, because we've talked before about the fear and despair that seem to be associated with the presence of the Black Riders. Certainly Frodo's, you know, desire to put on the ring is triggered by the presence of the Black Riders or by the the proximity of the Black Riders. But Aragorn is aware right now that they are not at hand, and yet it seems clear that the hobbits, at least, are fearful. The hobbits, at least, are desperate. Frodo is apparently, by all accounts, mortally wounded. So they're not feeling great. They're feeling the kind of emotional burden that they would feel in the presence of the Black Riders, but it seems to be different. Aragorn is drawing a distinction between actual fear and despair and the influence of the Black Riders. Now, perhaps the hobbits themselves could not distinguish between those two things, unaccustomed as they are to facing the agents of the enemy, but Strider can. He seems to be able to differentiate and to to use that strange, unsettling feeling that is caused by the Black Riders to locate their presence, or at least to indicate their proximity. I find that fascinating, too. Let's move on to the next slide. This is slide six in the downloadable packet, and we must address the Morgul blade. Sam choked with tears. Don't despair, said Strider. You must trust me now. Your Frodo is made of sterner stuff than I had guessed, though Gandalf hinted that it might prove so. He is not slain and I think he will resist the evil power of the wound longer than his enemies expect. I will do all I can to help and heal him, guard him well while I am away. He hurried off and disappeared again into the darkness. Frodo dozed, though the pain of his wound was slowly growing and a deadly chill was spreading from his shoulder to his arm and side. His friends watched over him, warming him and bathing his wound. The night passed slowly and wearily. Dawn was growing in the sky, and the dell was filling with grey light when Strider at last returned. "'Look!' he cried, and stooping he lifted from the ground a black cloak that had lain there hidden by the darkness. A foot above the lower hem there was a slash. "'This was the stroke of Frodo's sword,' he said. "'The only hurt that it did to his enemy, I fear, for it is unharmed, but all blades perish that pierce the dreadful king. More deadly to him was the name of Albareth. And more deadly to Frodo was this!' He stooped again and lifted up a long, thin knife. There was a cold gleam in it. A strider raised it. They saw that near the end of its edge was n- that near the end its edge was notched and the point was broken off. But even as he held it up in the growing light, they gazed in astonishment, for the blade seemed to melt and vanish like a smoke in the air, leaving only the hilt in Strider's hand. Oh, ass! He cried. It was this accursed knife that gave the wound. Few now have the skill and healing to match such evil weapons, but I will do what I can. So we learn that. Frodo's attack on the Witch King of Angmar, on the leader of the Nazgul, was pretty ineffectual, except that it saved Frodo's life, except that this opening, this opportunity, this courage, this action, while failing in its direct intent, caused Frodo to suffer a less grievous wound, and perhaps even by calling out Albareth Gilthoniel, 
drove off the Nazgul. Certainly Strider draws that comparison. More deadly to him was the name of Elbereth. But Frodo's sword did nothing but slash a hole in, uh, in the Witch King's cloak. And Strider tells us here that blades which pierce the Witch King disintegrate, that they fall to nothing. That will be relevant, of course, later in the story. So why have the Nazgul retreated? And why have they not returned? Well, there are a couple of possible answers here suggested by the text. The first and perhaps most immediate is Frodo's courage and the calling out of Elbereth Gilthoniel, the, the invocation of these powerful elven names of light and of, of hope. This could drive back the Nazgul, not necessarily the words themselves, but Frodo's belief in the words. We talked a little last time about why it is that he called out these names above all others. It is also possible that the Nazgul have retreated before the coming dawn, though it does seem as though Strider has been gone for a good long time. So it's not as though dawn was already staining the horizon when the Nazgul attacked. Hours have passed, but perhaps they wanted to wait for something else. For me, the most compelling argument as to the Nazgul's retreat at this point in the text comes from that first paragraph. Don't despair, said Strider. You must trust me now. Your Frodo is made of sterner stuff than I had guessed, though Gandalf hinted that it might prove so. He is not slain, and I think he will resist the evil power of the wound longer than his enemies expect. If a man had been stabbed by the Morgul blade. Oh, and I should I should parse this now, I suppose. Uh, I should gloss this now. The Nazgul knife is known as the Morgul blade. Morgul means dark sorcery. We'll see it again in the Tower of Minas Morgul on the border between Gondor and Mordor later in the story. So we generally refer to this, this weapon as the Morgul blade, the blade of dark sorcery. Um, but it seems to me as though had a man been pierced by the Morgul blade, had a dwarf been pierced by the Morgul blade, had an elf been pierced by the Morgul blade, they would have succumbed much more swiftly, if not almost immediately. In next week's reading, when we reach the relative safety of Rivendell, we're going to look at Frodo's remarkable courage, his remarkable strength of will in refusing to succumb to the consequence of the Nazgul blade. But any other person, any other mortal, any other being of Middle-earth would have fallen. So have the Nazgul simply retreated to a safe distance, trusting that the ring-bearer is going to fall? And if so, what will they expect to happen next? Is there a possibility that, knowing that Strider is in their company, that Strider will take up the One Ring? That he will, as humans inevitably are, be corrupted by it? It does seem to me that there may be more strategy to the Nazgul's withdrawal than fear or flight. Something as straightforward as being intimidated by Strider waving some, uh, some flaming branches or Frodo calling out some elven words. From there, Strider uh, returns with leaves of Althalas to treat Frodo's injury. These leaves, he said, I have walked far to find, for this plant does not grow in the bare hills, but in the thickets away south of the road. I found it in the dark by the scent of its leaves. He crushed a leaf in his fingers, and it gave out a sweet and pungent fragrance. It is fortunate that I could find it, for it is a healing plant that the men of the West brought to Middle-earth. Athalas, they named it, and it grows now sparsely and only near places where they dwelt or camped of old. And it is not known in the North, except to some of those who wander in the wild. It has great virtues, but over such a wound as this its healing powers may be small." So, firstly, put a pin in Athalas. We're going to see that again later in the story. We're going to see Aragorn use it to heal again later in the story. And here we get a perspective on one of the great 
kingly virtues. We know by now that that Aragorn's heritage is noble. We know that he is descended of the Numenorean kings. We know that he is descended of, well, we are about to learn, in fact, in about two pages time, that he is descended of Elendil specifically. He is noble in the sense of his blood and birth. And so he displays one of the powers of kingship. He displays one of the powers of nobility, that is, the power to heal. And we can distill this carefully, I think. Athelos is known as a weed in other parts of the north, though it grows but rarely and only around places where the Numenorians lived. But in Aragorn's hands specifically, it can heal. He brews the, the tea, the compress of the, uh, the Athelas, and then he applies it to Frodo and sings. And this is interesting because this echoes a version of the story of Baron and Luthien that is told in The Lay of Lathian. I think, it's, I think it's one of the earliest, if not the earliest, version of the Baron and Luthien story, um, where the, the athalas is applied and then sung over. There is a, an element of magic here. There is an element of spellcasting here that leads or contributes to the healing. The athalas is important, but the athalas is not necessarily enough. Strider is healing Frodo here to the limits of his ability, though, as he says, it has great virtues, but over such a wound as this, its healing powers may be small. And the same may be said, of course, of Aragorn, too. Athelas uh, is an elven word. It comes from the Sindarin word athea, meaning helpful or beneficial, and las, meaning leaf. So it is simply the, the helpful leaf, the beneficial leaf, the, the positive, benevolent leaf. That is the meaning of the word athelas. And as I say, we're going to uh, pick up with that later. Moving on then to chapter eight in your packets. Well, we walk a while. We walk a while. Before the first day's march was over, Frodo's pain began to grow again, but he did not speak of it for a long time. Four days passed without the ground or the scene changing much, except that behind them Weathertop slowly sank, and before them the distant mountains loomed a little nearer. Yet since that far cry they had seen and heard no sign of the enemy that marked their flight or followed them. They dreaded the dark hours and kept watch in pairs by night, expecting at any time to see black shapes stalking in the grey night, dimly lit by the cloud-veiled moon. But they saw nothing, and heard no sound but the sigh of withered leaves and grass. Not once did they feel the sense of present evil that had assailed them before the attack in the dell. It seemed too much to hope that the riders had already lost their trail again. Perhaps they were waiting to make some ambush in a narrow place. At the end of the fifth day, the ground began once more to rise slowly out of the wide, shallow valley into which they had descended. Strider now turned their course again northeastwards, and on the sixth day they reached the top of a long, slow-climbing slope and saw far ahead a huddle of wooded hills. Away below them they could see the road sweeping round the feet of the hills, and to their right a grey river gleamed pale in the thin sunshine. In the distance they glimpsed yet another, vil- uh, yet another river excuse me, in a stony valley half-veiled in mist. "'I'm afraid we must go back to the road here for a while,' said Strider. We are now come to the river Horwell, which the elves called Metheathal. It flows down out of the Ettenmoors, the Trollfells, north of Rivendell, and joins the loud water away in the south. Some call it the Grey Flood after that. It is a great water before it finds the sea. There is no way over it before, below its sources in the Ettenmoors, except by the last bridge on which the road crosses. What is the other river we can see far away there? asked Mary. That is loud water, the Bruinen of Rivendell, answered Strider. The road runs along the edge of the hills for many miles from the bridge to the ford of Bruinen. But I had not yet thought how we shall cross that water, one river at a time. We shall be fortunate indeed if we do not find the last bridge held against us. 
One of the most effective parts of Tolkien's storytelling in this chapter, I think, is the way that we build a sense of desperation, the passage of time, the crossing of this this adverse and aggressive geography. We're lost and we're desperate and we're moving swiftly, but we're not moving swiftly enough. And the grind of travel here simply elevates the dire aspects of Frodo's situation. He is suffering and slipping into darkness and we are striving, journeying forward from Weathertop to the last bridge to the Ford of Bruin and we're doing our best, but it isn't enough. The grind here, the oppressive desperation that is building is, for me at least, enormously effective. We should note, too, within this passage, another slight geographical inconsistency. It seems very unlikely, given the map that we were looking at earlier, that they could see the Loudwater, that they could see the Bruinen from a hill on the far side of the Horwell, of the uh, the river that the elves call Mithaethal. That is about 100 miles So it seems unlikely that they would be able to make out that river, even with Aragorn's sharp eyesight, uh, even with the Hobbit's sharp eyesight. It it is possible, I suppose, we might assume that they are, in fact, uh, more elevated than we previously thought, or more elevated than is implied outright by the text. But uh, it is difficult to imagine how they can see the Bruinen, given the map. That is perhaps less important. We are looking ahead now to the Trollshaws, and we are foreshadowing to this ambush. The retreat of the Nazgul has been something of a relief, but their presence out there just beyond the periphery of our vision, just in every shadow, you know, behind the next hill, on the other side of the next road, they are lurking now. And that feeling of oppressive and imminent danger is growing step by step by step. And now Strider has anchored it. Now he has given it a focus. He has erected a a lightning rod that is going to attract all of this static energy in the air. It is the last bridge. The last bridge is going to be held against them. That is where they are being funneled. That is necessarily where the Nazgul too would be funneled. There is no crossing the Horwell but for the last bridge. This is going to be it. This is going to be where things shake out. But of course, it isn't. We'll talk about that too as we get to it. Let's move on to the next slide and the history of this land. Who lives in this land? He asked. And who built these towers? Is this troll country? No, said Strider. Trolls do not build. No one lives in this land. Men once dwelt here ages ago, but none remain now. They became an evil people, as legends tell, for they fell into the shadow of Angmar. But all were destroyed in the war that brought the North Kingdom to its end. But that is now so long ago that the hills have forgotten them, although a shadow still lies on the land. Where did you learn such tales, if all the land is empty and forgetful? asked Peregrine. The birds and beasts do not tell tales of that sort. The heirs of Elendil do not forget all things past, said Strider and many more things than I can tell I remembered in Rivendell. "'Have you often been to Rivendell?' said Frodo. "'I have,' said Strider. "'I dwelt there once, and still I return when I may. There my heart is. But it is not my fate to sit in peace, even in the fair house of Alrond.'" So let's consider first the Kingdom of Arnor, the North Kingdom that Strider is discussing here, and the war between Arnor and Angmar that we have discussed previously. But all were destroyed in the war that brought the North Kingdom to its end, and that is now so long ago that the hills have forgotten them, though a shadow still lies on the land. Strider is not entirely accurate here. He is in a sense in that we are talking about the men. Men once dwelt here ages ago, but none remain now. They became an evil people, as legends tell, for they fell into the shadow of Angmar. The hills do not remember them. Even the land itself has purged the memory of these men, though their influence lingers. There is still a shadow upon this land. But also the hills carry the 
the outposts and the fortifications of the war. We've seen multiple descriptions of old jagged walls running along the crests of hills, old towers, windowless, eyeless, staring down upon the lands to the north and south. We've had these descriptions and we know that the landscape still bears the scars of war, still bears the proof of war. So while the men have been forgotten, the stones endure. The memory of war itself endures. We also get from Strider here a very important little little beat, a little phrase, which I mentioned earlier to foreshadow. The heirs of Elendil do not forget all things past. So this is explicit. Strider is of the royal line, of the royal lineage, of the kingdom that was broken. He is heir to Elendil, heir to Isildur. He is probably the most important man in the entire world. Of course, we already had our suspicions about Strider, but we'll get back to that. By this point, of course, we have entered the troll shaws, or we are passing through and among and beneath the troll shaws, and we have passed the last bridge, where we find, much to our surprise, that in fact the Nazgul have not been holding the bridge. So we get all of this build up. We get this this general sense of oppression and fear that builds through the first half of the chapter. Then Aragorn skillfully anchors that in the presence of the last bridge, and then well, it is anticlimactic. It is literally anticlimactic. We don't get a confrontation with the Nazgul there. So we push on forward into the Trollshaws, still beneath this, this dark shadow. That is skillfully done. I also want to call out this last line from this slide. Have you often been to Rivendell, said Frodo? I have, said Strider. I dwelt there once and still I return when I may. There my heart is, but it is not my fate to sit in peace even in the fair house of Elrond. And this gives us an interesting perspective on Strider's role and his relationship with the elves. There my heart is. Can mean that that is his home, or as we'll discover in the next chapter, or as will be implied in the next chapter, Aragorn also has a more personal reason for wanting to be in Rivendell. But also we we draw a connection here between Aragorn's heart and peace. There my heart is, but it is not my fate to sit in peace, even in the fair house of Elrond. So we draw two connections here, I suppose. The fair house of Elrond is peaceful. My heart yearns for peace. But there is a discontinuity between these two things. Is this the discontinuity of the mortal and the immortal? Is this the discontinuity between men and elves? Or is this something specific to Strider? We get the sense already, and we have had, for those of us who have been reading closely, the sense already of this quiet tragedy, this dignified tragedy that is a fundamental aspect of Aragorn's nature. He will not shirk his duty. He will not shirk his responsibility. He is valiant, but it is not a simple or heroic valor. It is not a heroic valor in the classical sense. He does not, (laughs) as Faramir will say later, he does not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. Strider is a warrior. He is a leader. He is a king, but it is a kingship that is already benevolent. It is already peaceful. He does not seek war, though he does not shirk from war when it becomes necessary. We'll continue to see the evolution of Strider's character as we arrive in Rivendell in next week's session. From there, we move on and we arrive at the trolls. We actually cross paths with Bilbo's journey. It is a striking and surprising beat. It is, I think, every bit as surprising to us as it is to Frodo and the other hobbits. 
There stood the trolls, three large trolls. One was stooping and the other two stood staring at him. Strider walked forward unconcernedly. Get up, old stone, he said, and broke his stick upon the stooping troll. Nothing happened. There was a gasp of astonishment from the hobbits, and then even Frodo laughed. Well, he said, we are forgetting our family history. These must be the very three that were caught by Gandalf, quarreling over the right way to cook thirteen dwarves and one hobbit. I had no idea we were anywhere near the place, said Pippin. He knew the story well. Bilbo and Frodo had told it often, but as a matter of fact, he had never more than half believed it. Even now, he looked at the stone trolls with suspicion, wondering if some magic might not suddenly bring them to life again. You're forgetting not only your family history, but all you ever knew about trolls, said Strider. It is broad daylight with a bright sun, and yet you come back trying to scare me with a tale of live trolls waiting for us in this glade? In any case, you must have noticed that one of them has an old bird's nest behind his ear. That would be a most unusual ornament for a live troll. They all laughed. Frodo felt his spirits reviving. The reminder of Bilbo's first successful adventure was heartening. The sun, too, was warm and comforting, and the mist before his eyes seemed to be lifting a little. They rested for some time in the glade and took their midday meal right under the shadow of the troll's large legs. This reminds me always of Tom Bombadil's injunction to the hobbits after emerging from the Barodans. Run naked on the grass, go lay in the sun, go be warm and of the world. That seems to be what Tom is suggesting as, as a cure for the darkness and the coldness that lay upon the hobbits after their encounter with the Barrowites. And this seems similar, more applicable here to Frodo, but that is in itself, I think, fascinating because this suggests that Warmth and light, we must remember, too. Strider urging the hobbits to lay Frodo by the fire, to keep the fire stoked, to have heat and light upon him as he is trying to endure the evil of the Morgul blade. This draws a direct connection between light and warmth and life and cold and darkness and death. This, by this point in The Lord of the Rings, seems to be an elemental opposition within the world of Middle-earth. This isn't specific to the Barrowites or the Nazgul, though, yes, for those of you who have read deeply into Tolkien's lore, it is true that it was the Witch King of Angmar himself who roused the Whites within the Barrow, so he's already had a negative effect on Frodo once in the course of this book before they ever meet. But nonetheless, this does seem to be suggesting a more general opposition between the forces of light or the, I don't want to say forces, that's not strictly true, the elements associated with light and the elements associated with dark, the elements associated with heat and with warmth and the elements associated with cold. And of course, ultimately with death. And it is no coincidence here that we pass into, as I said earlier, the realm of story. We pass into a fairy tale. This is literally a fairy tale. We learn here in the fourth paragraph on the slide, I had no idea we were anywhere near the place, said Pippin. He knew the story well. Bilbo and Frodo had told it often, but as a matter of fact, he had never more than half believed it. Here we learn that Bilbo has been telling the story of his adventure. He has been relating perhaps imperfectly, perhaps with complete honesty. We simply don't know. We don't have enough information, though it does seem that he was wrong about the location of the uh, of the troll's den, I suppose. Um, Bilbo has been telling the story of his own personal experience, but then Frodo has been telling the story too. And that is how stories spread through cultures. This is how this story has become a fairy tale, a myth, 
a story that is something of a cultural touchstone for the small community of younger hobbits, which grew up in Bilbo's, I was going to say shadow, but that seems incorrect, in Bilbo's light. They grew up in the reflected radiance of Bilbo's adventure, including Merry and Pippin and Sam too. They've all heard this tale, but it was a story. But now it is real. Now it is made manifest. And that is important. We are restored to faith and to hope, at least in part, by this realization. This was Bilbo's first successful adventure, as Frodo reminds us here, echoing the voice of the narrator back in the pages of The Hobbit. And that isn't nothing. Darkness can be overcome. Danger can be overcome. Sometimes things turn to the good. And of course, we must remember as the hobbits are presumably remembering, the details of this. What defeated the trolls? Well, the trolls were defeated by that thing which always defeats evil, that self-destructive, greedy, avaricious impulse that always leads to the fall of evil. And then the emergence of the light. The light could not be denied. The dawn came and swept over the trolls and they were turned to stone. So again, this isn't just... Bilbo's great triumph. This isn't just a simple victory over some monsters that lived in the forest, if trolls can properly be called monsters. This is absolutely emblematic of that fundamental opposition that I was describing earlier, of of light and life versus cold and dark and death. That opposition is manifested here in the troll glade, and light wins, as light always does. From there, we get Sam's song, which I'm actually not going to uh, read to you in this particular instance. This is one of two songs which were adapted by Tolkien for inclusion in The Lord of the Rings that did not come from any other part of his legendarium. That is to say that he didn't uh, write an earlier version of this song as a part of the material that would eventually become the Silmarillion or, or you know, anything that is attached to Middle-earth. In 1935, a collection of poems written by J.R.R. Tolkien and E.V. Gordon was compiled for the students at Leeds University. It was then passed to A.H. Smith of University College London who did a short print run. Uh, This book, this bound volume, was called Songs for the Philologists, and it contains odd fragments of poetry and rather self-indulgent and whimsical works. But since Smith had not asked for the permission of Gordon or Tolkien, the printed booklets were not distributed. So they simply remained at University College in London, and most copies were destroyed in the Blitz during the Second World War. So this book, Songs for the Philologists, containing poems by E.V. Gordon and J.R.R. Tolkien, is now the rarest of Tolkien's books. There are perhaps 12, 13, 14 copies surviving in the world today, and contained within that volume, Songs for the Philologists, is the root of the boot, or boot and bottom. This is Sam's song. Do check the show notes accompanying this podcast, where I will link to a YouTube video of the professor singing this song. It is delightful. I like it a great deal, but... Like the Man in the Moon, you know, Cat in the Fiddle song that we got back in the Prancing Pony, Frodo's song, this is somewhat self-indulgent, I think, of Tolkien. It it connects more closely to our understanding of Middle-earth than that previous song, but it mostly exists to illuminate this moment of restoration. It is a song doing what songs do best, which is offering hope and light and restoration. And of course, this is Sam's song. This is a big deal, because we've had Sam 
offering fragments of verse. He has quoted Bilbo before, and he has slipped toward poetry. We mustn't forget his sailing, sailing, sailing chant, his, his repetition of that word back in, uh, back in Hobbiton. But now he is actually reciting composed poetry. These lines conform to the tune of an old song, so he hasn't written music yet, but he is writing poetry, and that itself is significant. From there, we move on and we meet Glorfindel. Soon, Strider beckoned to them, and the hobbits left the bushes and hurried down to the road. This is Glorfindel, who dwells in the house of Elrond, said Strider. Hail and well met at last, said the elf lord to Frodo. I was sent from Rivendell to look for you. We feared that you were in danger upon the road. Then Gandalf has reached Rivendell, cried Frodo, joyfully. No, he had not when I departed, and that was nine days ago, answered Glorfindel. Elrond received news that troubled him. Some of my kindred journeying in your land beyond the Baron Duin learned that things were amiss and sent messages as swiftly as they could. They said the nine were abroad and that you were astray bearing a great burden without guidance, for Gandalf had not returned. There are few even in Rivendell that can ride openly against the nine, but such as there were, Elrond sent out north, west, and south. It is thought that you might turn far aside to avoid pursuit and become lost in the wilderness. It was my lot to take the road, and I came to the bridge of Mithaethel and left a token there nigh on seven days ago. Three of the servants of Sauron were upon the bridge, but they withdrew, and I pursued them westward. I came also upon two others, but they turned away southward. Since then I, had searched, I have searched for your trail. Two days ago I found it and followed it over the bridge, and today I mark that you descended from the hills again, but come, there is no time for further news. Since you are here, we must risk the peril of the road and go. There are five behind us, and when they find your trail upon the road, they will ride after us like the wind. And they are not all. Where the other four may be, I do not know. I fear that we may find the ford is already held against us. So here we get a lovely narrative symmetry and a masterful manipulation of the rising tension that is evident throughout this chapter. As I said earlier, the oppression is building, the fear is building, the desperation is building, and Aragorn tells us that the last bridge will be held against us, only it isn't. And now Glorfindel says, but the Ford of Bruinen, that will be held against us. He strongly implies that this is going to be the focal point of their conflict with the Black Riders, or at least with this conflict of the Black Riders. But hey, let's take a look at Glorfindel. He rides out, dispatched by Elrond. There are few, even in Rivendell, who can ride openly against the Nine. But, you know, there are some. And I am one. But such as they were, Elrond sent out north, west, and south. It was thought that you might turn far aside to avoid pursuit and become lost in the wilderness. So the elves are ranging forth. They are seeking the Black Rider, seeking Frodo, seeking to protect him and escort him to Rivendell. It was my lot to take the road, and I came to the bridge of Mithaethel and left a token there nigh on seven days ago. This was the token that Aragorn found when they crossed the bridge, of course, indicating that it was, in fact, safe. Three of the servants of Sauron were upon the bridge, but they withdrew, and I pursued them westward. Three of the Black Riders were upon the bridge, and Glorfindel rode to them, and they withdrew. They couldn't stand against Glorfindel. Glorfindel is one of the most serious elves that we will ever meet in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. He is noble, he is valiant, he is enormously, enormously powerful. We have not yet seen the fullest magnitude, of course, of his power, but this is the first hint that this may be so. He is... It would seem to us, at least at this point, that he is of a different order than the elves that we have previously met. He is no Gildor. He is no elf of music and whimsy and feasting. Glorfindel seems to be very different. He can stand against the Nine. So 
I came upon two others, but they turned away southward, so three fled from the bridge, two more fled southward. I'm just going along, brushing the Nazgul off of the road. It's no big deal, no big deal at all. Two, uh, since then I have searched for your trail. Two days ago I found it and followed it over the bridge, and today I marked where you descended from the hills again. But come, there is no time for further news. So now we have a new ally, and we're ready to move forward, but the threat remains. There are five behind us, and four somewhere out there in the darkness. And the five behind us are coming. Sometime later, Strider and Glorfindel have an opportunity to talk, and Strider brings him up to speed. Briefly, Strider told of the attack on their camp under Weathertop and of the deadly knife. He drew out the hilt which he had kept and handed it to the elf. Glorfindel shuddered as he took it, but he looked intently at it. There are evil things written on this hilt, he said, though maybe your eyes cannot see them. Keep it to Aragorn till we reach the house of Elrond, but be wary and handle it as little as you may. Alas, the wounds of this weapon are beyond my skill to heal. I will do what I can, but all the more do I urge you now to go on without rest. He searched the wound on Frodo's shoulder with his fingers, and his face grew graver as if what he learned disquieted him. But Frodo felt the chill lessen in his side and arm. A little warmth crept down from his shoulder to his hand, and the pain grew easier. The dusk of evening seemed to grow lighter about him, as if a cloud had been withdrawn. He saw his friends' faces more clearly again, and a measure of new hope and strength returned. "'You shall ride my horse,' said Glorfindel. "'I will shorten the stirrups up to the saddle skirts, and you must sit as tight as you can, but you need not fear.' My horse will not let any rider fall that I command him to bear. His pace is light and smooth, and if danger presses too near, he will bear you away with a speed that even the black steeds of the enemy cannot rival. No, he will not, said Frodo. I shall not ride him if I am to be carried off to Rivendell or anywhere else, leaving my friends behind in danger. Glorfindel smiled. I doubt very much, he said, if your friends would be in danger if you were not with them. The pursuit would follow you and leave us in peace, I think. It is you, Frodo, and that which you bear that brings us all in peril. Glorfindel making it absolutely clear here that it is Frodo and the Ring that is attracting the ire of the Black Riders. Even Glorfindel himself, even Aragorn, heir of Elendil, heir of Isildur, would be of no significance to the Black Riders at this point. They hunt for the Ring. None of this would be happening if not for Frodo, if not for the Ring. Thus, getting Frodo to the relative safety of Rivendell isn't necessarily just about protecting him, isn't necessarily just about the hope of healing, but it is a means of protecting the others too. We can't all travel if we will fall under the blades of the Nazgul. We can't all travel together, but if we send you off alone, thanks to the intercession of Glorfindel and his mighty steed, then we too would be protected by that action. This is... A generous action. It isn't cowardice to flee. It is necessity. It simply must be done. So we have Glorfindel healing Frodo a little here. The touch and healing art of the elves is of a different order again than Aragorn's. Glorfindel doesn't need herbs and song at this point. Simply the touch is enough to warm Frodo at least a little, but he is disquieted. We are still concerned for Frodo. Though he is holding on and lingering longer than any might have expected, he is still faltering. He's restored here for a moment, but no more than a moment. In the next slide, we fall under attack. Ride forward! Ride! cried Glorfindel to Frodo. He did not obey at once, for a strange reluctance seized him. Checking the horse to a walk, he turned and looked back. The riders seemed to sit upon their great steeds like threatening statues upon a hill, dark and solid, while all the woods and land about them receded as if into a mist. Suddenly he knew in his heart that they were silently commanding him to wait. 
Then at once fear and hatred awoke in him. His hand left the bridle and gripped the hilt of his sword, and with a red flash he drew it. Ride on! Ride on! cried Glorfindel, and then loud and clear he called to the horse in the elf tongue, Norolim! Norolim, Asphaloth! At once the white horse sprang away and sped like the wind along the last lap of the road. At the same moment the black horses leapt down the hill in pursuit, and from the riders came a terrible cry, such as Frodo had heard filling the woods with horror in the east farthing far away. It was answered, and to the dismay of Frodo and his friends, out from the trees and the rocks away on the left, four other riders came flying. Two rode toward Frodo, two galloped madly toward the the ford to cut off his escape. They seemed to him to run like the wind and to grow swiftly larger and darker as their courses converged with his. Frodo looked back for a moment over his shoulder. He could no longer see his friends. The riders behind were falling back. Even their great steeds were no match in speed for the white elf horse of Glorfindel. He looked forward again, and hope faded. There seemed no chance of reaching the ford before he was cut off by the others that had lain in ambush. He could see them clearly now. They appeared to have cast aside their hoods and black cloaks. They were robed in white and gray. Swords were naked in their pale hands. Helms were on their heads. Their cold eyes glittered, and they called to him with foul voices. Perhaps the most significant thing in this uh, in this part of the book is that Frodo is now experiencing the Nazgul, experiencing the Black Riders as he did on Weathertop without, crucially, wearing the ring. Frodo is now being drawn into the Wraith world and a careful read of the text will confirm that this is indeed the case, that there is a connection between the fragment of the Morgul blade currently resting in Frodo's shoulder and the effect of the ring. He did not obey at once for a strange reluctance seized him. Well, we've seen that before, right? We know what that is. The strange reluctance that that seizes Frodo's in moments of fear and of danger, that's the ring. But we don't get any kind of urge to put the ring on. The ring isn't even mentioned. Checking his horse to a walk, he turned and looked back. The riders seemed to sit upon their great steeds like threatening statues upon a hill, dark and solid, while all the woods and land about them receded as if into a mist. As before, Frodo can see the wraiths clearly. He can see the Nazgul clearly, but he can't see the world clearly. Then at once fear and hatred awoke in him. His hand left the bridle and gripped the hilt of his sword, and with a red flash, he drew it. With a red flash, too. This, we must remember, is a sword that was crafted by the men of Arnor specifically to fight the agents of Angmar. This is a sword that was intended for this purpose, and it too seems to be possessed of some enchantment. The red flash, as he draws it, is the enchantment of the blade that Frodo took from the Barodans. But Glorfindel's voice is powerful enough, Glorfindel's command is powerful enough that it can send Frodo onward. Ride on, ride on, cried Glorfindel, and then loud and clear he called to the horse in the elf tongue, Norolim, Norolim, Asphaloth. Asphaloth is the name of the horse, and Norolim simply translates as, as run swift. It is pretty direct. So Frodo hurtles toward the ford only for the trap to be triggered, only for the ambush to be realized. The other black riders emerge from the trees and from the bushes. He is now lost. And lost in more than one sense, because we get this note that he can no longer see his companions, and it isn't clear whether he has simply passed out of their range, he can no longer see them because they are occluded by the geography, or perhaps more distressingly, he can no longer see them because they too have retreated into the mist. All there is now 
is the conflict with the Nazgul. He can see them clearly as he did on Weathertop. They appeared to have cast aside their hoods and black cloaks. That's crucial, by the way. They appeared to have cast aside. They have not, in fact, cast aside their, their hoods and black cloaks. He is now simply seeing them uncloaked. He is seeing them unrobed in, in you know, a more mystical sense, perhaps. They were robed in white and gray. Swords were naked in their pale hands. Helms were on their heads. Their cold eyes glittered and they called to him with fell voices. Frodo is now slipping into the realm of Wraithdom completely. He is no longer fundamentally connected to the natural world, except for the horse beneath him that is carrying him onward. With that, we move on to our last slide, the end of this chapter and the greatest manifestation of power thus far. Go back, he cried. Go back to the land of Mordor and follow me no more. His voice sounded thin and shrill to his own ears. The riders halted, but Frodo had not the power of Bombadil. His enemies laughed at him with a harsh and chilling laughter. Come back, come back, they called. To Mordor we will take you. Go back, he whispered. The ring, the ring, they cried with deadly voices, and immediately their leader urged his horse forward into the water, followed closely by two others. By Alpareth and Luthien the Fair, said Frodo with a last effort, lifting up his sword, you shall have neither the ring nor me. Then the leader, who was now half across the ford, stood up menacing in his stirrups and raised up his hand. Frodo was stricken dumb. He felt his tongue cleave to his mouth and his heart laboring. His sword broke and fell out of his shaking hand. The elf horse reared and snorted. The foremost of the black horses had almost set foot upon the shore. At that moment there came a roaring and a rushing, a noise of loud waters rolling many stones. Dimly Frodo saw the river below them rise, and down along its course there came a plumed cavalry of waves. White flames seemed to Frodo to flicker on their crests, and he half fancied that he saw amid the water white riders upon white horses with frothing manes. The three riders that were still in the midst of the ford were overwhelmed. They disappeared, buried suddenly under angry foam. Those that were behind drew back in dismay. With his last failing senses, Frodo heard cries, and it seemed to him that he saw, beyond the riders that hesitated on the shore, a shining figure of white light, and behind it ran small shadowy forms waving flames that flared red in the grey mist that was falling over the world. The black horses were filled with madness, and leaping forward in terror, they bore their riders into the rushing flood. Their piercing cries were drowned in the roaring of the river as it carried them away. Then Frodo felt himself falling, and the roaring and confusion seemed to rise and engulf him together with his enemies. He heard and saw no more. So, what do we see unfolding in this chapter? Is this simply the rescue of Frodo by an intrusion? Is this eucatastrophe? Is this a deus ex machina resolution to our current plot problem? Well, no. It is, once again, an embodiment of the fundamental principle that drives action in Middle-earth. Frodo has courage. He has first opportunity. He has first good fortune. Meeting with Glorfindel and being put upon Glorfindel's horse, and let's be clear, there are almost no elves in Middle-earth that it would have been more fortuitous to meet on the road than Glorfindel. But he is put upon Glorfindel's horse and sent forward. That is luck. Frodo didn't earn that. That is simply good fortune. But Frodo manages to turn his good fortune into into actual good, into strength, into capability, because he takes that opportunity and wields it. Go back, he cried. Go back to the land of Mordor and follow me no more. His voice sounded thin and shrill in his own ears. The riders halted, but Frodo had not the power of Bombadil. But nonetheless, the riders halted. The riders stopped. 
Had Frodo not had the courage to call out, had Frodo not continued to resist, the riders could have crossed the ford trivially before the white water came crashing down upon them. By Elbereth and Luthien the Fair, said Frodo with a last effort, lifting up his sword, you shall have neither the ring nor me. Then the leader, who was now half across the ford, stood up menacing in his stirrups and raised up his hand. He is pausing in the middle of the ford to remotely shatter Frodo's sword. A very significant act, considering that, A, this is one of the most powerful manifestations of magic that we've seen in The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien doesn't generally depict magic in this way. He doesn't depict magic as having stark physical consequences very often, but this is a powerful one. The, the leader of the Nazgul, the witch king of Angmar, extends the hand and shatters Frodo's sword, a sword that bears an enchantment designed to combat him and him alone, or at least him and the people who have fallen under his influence. But he shatters the sword. And we learn here there is a possible ambiguity. His sword broke and fell out of his shaking hand. There is a possible interpretation there that says that to, to it, it breaks here in the sense of routing. It breaks here in the sense of fleeing. But we do learn in the next chapter that it did, in fact, shatter. It was destroyed. So here, Frodo's resistance, Frodo's Courage is absolutely necessary to the defeat of the Nazgul at the Ford of Bruinen. Here he holds them at bay through sheer force of will for just a few seconds, but those few seconds are all that is necessary. It is entirely possible that at least the Witch King of Angmar could have crossed the Ford and passed out of the zone of danger here if Frodo had not opposed him before the white water came rushing down. So the white water comes rushing down and consumes the riders. Three of the riders were still in the midst of the ford. They're overwhelmed. They disappear, buried under angry foam. Those that were behind drew back, but as they drew back from the ford, so Glorfindel falls upon them. Glorfindel is the figure in white, the shining figure of white light, and behind it ran small shadowy forms waving flames that flared red in the gray mist that was falling over the world. Well, those are the hobbits and Aragorn, presumably, the, again, flaring red blades. These are the blades that were taken from the Barrowdowns. They may also be, for Strider, given how he likes to fight Nazgul, they may actually be blazing torches. He may have, I guess he probably didn't take time to kindle fire, right? But perhaps Glorfindel has some elf trick that can cause fire to, to leap to where it is needed most. In any case, what we see here is, again, opportunity and good fortune working in harmony with courage and strength. Frodo resists he resists unfailingly, and he resists for long enough that victory, or at least safety, is assured. That is going to be it for this week's reading. We are going to pick up this afternoon as I record this. It is possible that you are listening to this in the brief period between the release of this podcast and the next live session. The next live session takes place at 3 p.m. Eastern on Thursday, July 27th. We're going to look at the first chapter of book two of The Fellowship of the Ring, Many Meetings. That, of course, is a regular YouTube live session. So you can head on over to youtube.com slash pointnorthmedia and take part in that. You can also head on over to Point North Media and click the podcasts button where you will see a calendar if you scroll down the page page a little, you will see a calendar uh, which contains information about all of the live broadcasts that we have planned over at Point North. Everything that I do at Point North Media is possible because of you and your fantastic and generous support. You can pledge your support to Point North Media at patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. There you can pledge a dollar a month or whatever you can afford, and every single dollar is valuable. Every single dollar is necessary. Running Point North takes a huge amount of time and a surprise amount of money to do. I'm very keen to 
expand my broadcast platform to increase video quality, to increase technical reliability, and vanquish some of these technical dragons once and for all. And I can only do that with your support. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider pledging your support at patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia, and consider telling a friend about this podcast or about one of the other podcasts that I produce over at Point North. In addition to There and Back Again, our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-Earth, we have Storms on the Way. We're wrapping up Storms on the Way next week, our exploration of Neil Gaiman's American Gods, and then we're returning to Hogwarts with the third season of Dear Mr. Potter, in which I discuss Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. All of that, plus a new writing podcast, The Narrative Beat, which begins on August the 7th. Head on over to pointnorthmedia.com to find out more about all of that. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your patience this week. I will talk to you all again soon. Until then, take care. (laughs) 